Hey everyone, Sloan here. I am feeling like the world's biggest dingus for sitting on this interview uh, for almost a full year. Uh, we recorded this conversation with Caitlin Rosenthal, um, an incredible historian at the University of California, Berkeley, right before I moved out to Utah. And I sort of like, um, just life happened and we never released it. Um, and that's dumb. And, and that's at a, in a way unforgivable because um, the conversation touched on so many things that I think are really central to, um, you know, not only free money, but I think the investment profession and its, you know, ethical future to the extent that such a thing can be claimed. Um, Caitlin went to grad school thinking that she was going to study the history of data. And we talk about that in the interview. Um, but she wound up basically identifying that a lot of corporate data, a lot of early corporate data came out of slave plantations. Um, and as a practical matter, not only did data come out of slave plantations, but also many of the modern practices of accounting. Um, and the, you know, in a way, these plantation ecosystems, because uh, managers could demand uh, things of their employees or, or you know, um, you know, the, the, the folks that they're directly oppressing, um, were this sort of hub of management experimentation that's not really talked about so much in the modern history of the corporation. Um, usually when the history of how business professionalized is told, What's emphasized is, you know, kind of the, the growth of industrial mills in the north around the 18, uh, you know, kind of the post-Civil War era. Um, but Caitlin claims, and I think, you know, it's in her excellent book, Accounting for Slavery, it's very well supported, um, that, the, you know, these, the, the antecedents of this were actually established way earlier than that in the American South um, by a bunch of the least cuddly individuals in the history of the world. So. I think there are a lot of really interesting conversations in this episode about, you know, what business ethics looks like uh, in a world where we have to contend with that legacy, um, you know, but also like, uh, you know, how planters administered their businesses and just the history of business more, more broadly. So I'm so excited to bring this conversation to you. We also, uh, as usual, have our uh, mix of banter, gardening tips, and, um, you know, and, and questions from you. So if you are, um, you may have noticed that we've been doing this podcast more regularly. Um, if you are sitting there with a curiosity that you would like us to address, pretty please send an email to freemoneypod at gmail.com. That's freemoneypod at gmail.com. And while you're at it and you're thinking about things that you could do to help us out, um, leave us a review on your podcast store of choice because that really does help other people find the podcast. Um, and, and, you know, help us big, build a bigger community and really be more effective um, in sort of the advocacy work that we're doing to, to try and make investment management a, a more thoughtful and long-term oriented place. Anyway, I love you. Bye. Ahoy, free money podcast listeners. I'm Sharkbait Buckley, the Disclosure Pirate, and I'm here to set you straight about what's going on with this here show. Sloan Ortel is a spreadsheet wench that works for Invest Vegan LLC, a Utah-registered investment advisor, and the Woodcash Public Benefit Corporation, YAR. Ashby Monk is a sea dog that works for Stanford University. And KDX, when he's not minding the binnacle on the poop deck of this here man o' war. 
All opinions expressed by either Sloan or Ashby are entirely their own and do not reflect the opinions of their crew and or any company. Clients of InvestVegan may maintain positions in securities and strategies discussed in this podcast. Advisory services are only offered to clients or prospective clients where InvestVegan and its representatives are properly licensed or exempted and a client agreement has been executed. Yar, thanks for listening. Here comes the money. Here we go. Money talk. Here comes the money. Welcome to the Free Money Podcast. It's the Brooklyn Bay Area connection, conversation, whatever. I don't know. I say a different thing every time, but it's no, always don't. about institutional investing. No, I don't. You all, Usually you do the same thing, which is how I riff off of it. You know what I mean? <laughs> we have freedom within we the framework. Banter. Freedom yeah, within true. the framework, Sloan. Yep. But I will tell you, I think our listenership is going up. Mm. Not for any deals we've done, but because... Free money is harder to find. So True. people are looking around. The interest rates are up. I keep yep. finding free money uh, in my internet uh, searches because people are saying there's no more free money. You yep. know what I mean? Yep. Like, I think we've hit a, like a, a high for like the last decade in mortgages right now. Yep. Yeah. Yeah. And like, I, I think like, you know, for basically the last 30 years, a lot of like, you know, very simple investment strategies, literally printed free money. Like, you know, I mean, what about like just levering up, you know, borrowing a bunch of yen and buying U.S. stocks? I mean, yeah. I feel like that was like what people were doing for like 15 years. Yeah. And all the people like staking random NFTs and cryptos, that was free money that's gone yep. too. That's also yep. gone. There's, you know, I, I think that like what's interesting is like the kind of free money we're talking about is like the kind of free money that you can acquire through wisdom and like discipline yes. and practice. Value know. creation. Yeah, yeah, exactly. Like there, there's a, you know, a very like, you know, Ashby uh, thing. I think this was like a talk you gave at some point um, that I was in where you're talking about how people were trying to get like foreknowledge so much mm. of the time. You yes. know what I mean? Like, like That's wasting what hedge funds are after. Yeah, yeah. yeah like trying to know what's going to happen next in the market, whereas like, you know, trying to know who to associate with in the market is much more the free money vibe. Yeah, the free money vibe is to spot what all those hedge funds are like twisting their hair around, trying to get two minutes of foreknowledge, which has been showing <laughs> in academic research to have no social value. Uh, and, and we judo move their foreknowledge pursuit for free money yeah. somehow. Somehow. That's the dream. Yeah. Well, well, it's, you know, it's an integrated set of practices and frameworks, right? Yeah. You know, it's really more of a, you know, a, a direction of travel than it is a prescribed destination, I guess. It's a bit of a long cut, you know, it's not a short cut, but the yeah. cut gets you somewhere good. You know, think of it like a hike. That's what we're providing. Yeah. A nice hike yeah. to a view. It's funny. I was talking to a group of investors, um, you know, or a group of like, you know, financial advisors the other day. And they were like, Sloan, how are you covering all the stocks that you're covering? And yeah. I'm like, things don't change very often, guys. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. You, you know what I mean? Like, the, yeah, if, you may get you new satellite imagery every day, but it doesn't matter. 
Yeah, like I, 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 there was a ProPublica story that I that came out a, a little while ago about how a lot of staffing agencies, basically, like half or more of their of their income can be sort of tax credits that they collect for um, helping to get formerly unemployed people jobs. Yeah. Um, you know, and like, it, it, you know, it's th this was like a breaking story. It, it weighed on a lot of stocks. You look at these companies, and it's not like they're making any like secrets of the fact that they're this very exploitative yeah. <laughs> business, you know, it's like right in their investor presentation. Um, it's wild. Yeah. So you can spend all the time in, in the world trying to anticipate that, or you can simply cancel people who have bad vibes. <laughs> oh my God. Speaking of bad vibes, Sloan, we're very good at tran transitions on this show. It's, I, uh, mean, I, I specialize in transitions. It's, how about hot vibes here in California? Ooh. Whoa. I know we don't like to orient people to when we're actually recording these things because sometimes they come out three weeks later. Um, the reality is it was 110 degrees here two days ago. What? Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. That's to the nuts. point where I was outside uh, and I melted. And then after that, I put my body back together again, went for a walk. It was so insane. Wow. Um, I actually like saw somebody pushing their dog in the stroller. <laughs> and uh, it was, you know, normally you're like, these people are crazy. I actually was like, that's pretty smart. That's smart. You, uh, mega dogs getting a, st a stroller. Yeah. I was like, maybe I should get the stroller. I always get excited when I realize it's a dog stroller and that the person's <laughs> crazy. Um, because I think the dog, like, I want to see the dog. Mm -hmm. Like, I'm not, the, I mean, I've had babies. I'm not that interested in like oogling the baby. But if you've got a cat or a dog in a stroller, I'm interested. That's like the yeah. phase of life I'm in. Where when oh, I realize oh, yeah. it's a dog stroller, I'm like, oh, little doggy. Hi there. Yeah, actually, I would just say that you are inherently attuned to intrinsic value um, because <laughs> like that, like I, the other day I was driving and I saw a, a dog that had a like a harness in front of itself and it had like yeah. a bar that was vibrating up and down. And I was like, what's going on? Does that dog what? have like some kind of weird thing going? And Clara was with me in the car. She's like, it's the dog is blind. Uh, <gasps> that's like a dog. That's like a C. That's like a the stick for blind dogs. Yeah, uh, that's amazing. Because I've <laughs> exactly. seen the dogs with the hind legs that are paralyzed, and oh, so with they're the wheelchair. running with the wheelchair. That's amazing. <laughs> so cute. anyway, we could probably do a whole show on the dog apparatus. Like animals. Yeah, maybe yeah. maybe that'll be the Christmas episode. Uh, yeah, maybe we'll have to yeah. add a segment on dogs. <laughs> Well, you know, I mean, there are there are investment themes related to pets and we can talk about it in a later I'm episode. I'm sure we could link to it. But I need to get to the news because I've got three yeah, yeah, items. Yeah. Ooh. And this is the pronunciation episode. So <laughs> get ready. Oh, man. Uh, first, uh, first bit of news is perhaps the worst investment performance I've ever seen in 25 years for a pension fund that I've been wow. monitoring. And it's coming to you from the the very famous Danish pension plan um, called Arbejdsmarkedets Tilegs Pension. Arbejdsmarkedets Tilegs Pension. Yeah, yeah. Now you understand why they call it ATP. 
Okay. Yeah, 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 yeah. yeah, yeah. <laughs> I actually had to go figure out what. Why won't they tell me what ATP's name is? I want to have this name to it's hand. Like you don't. You don't want to and know. Like, some arcane no, secrets. No, 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 no. Yeah, yeah. Actually, they, and, they, uh, they they lose strength every time someone speaks their name out loud. Exactly. <laughs> if we were gonna do the A16Z like Andreessen Horowitz website thing, it mm-hmm. would be A28N. <laughs> okay. That's my that's my big joke of the day. Anyway, Martin Prestegard was the new CEO installed. He's got it easy because he his first month he's reporting a minus thirty six and a half percent return. He is wow. not responsible for that, so he gets to wow. show up and be like, "Yeah, I'm not going to do what these guys did. I'm going to make it better." The good news, though, for the fund and the pensioners is it's all hedged. Mm. So that's a reflection, by the way, of the interest rates coming up and the liabilities coming down and all this kind of good stuff. Inflation going up. So actually, it looks terrible. More inflate, more pronunciation problems there. Terrible, but it's it's less terrible than that sounds. Also, when you think that the last three years of performance for this fund, 44.2, 23.3, 35. That's so when you taking, hedge. They're taking some more risk. Yeah, they should have yeah. hedged. They should have called yeah. top on that shit. That's yeah, true. yeah, 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 yeah. That's like that's where you start, like you know, taking like a percentage and putting it aside and just you know, kind of. I don't yep. know. Yep. Okay. Perfect. Next news is Woo! today in woke capitalism. Woke capitalism. <laughs> <laughs> Insurance companies, the bastion of left-leaning socialists. Yep. Yep. For-profit insurance companies, apparently 90% of them are, wait, integrating climate risk into their investment portfolios. How woke are these insurance companies getting where they're maximizing profits by linking material financial risks to future climate-related claims? Sloan? What a bunch of, what a bunch of cucks, honestly. Like, are yeah. they just what are doing they, this? communist? Like, yeah, like, seriously. Like, I, the <laughs> next they're going to... I hate Next that word gonna... cuck so much. It's my least. I just want to call that out. I think that's my least favorite word of the it's, this generation. It's probably one of the few <laughs> remaining swear words. Uh, it's like um, that C word in yeah, England. Oh, that one that goes. Yeah. It's not the C O word. It's the C U word over there. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That that's like. <laughs> yeah, but it gets close. It's like you're combining the two words I was suggesting into a single word. <laughs> the CO and the CU, and now you've mm-hmm. got cuck. Anywho, um, similar to the wokeism of the insurance companies, thank God we have the Attorney General for Indiana. Todd oh my God. Rock it up. And this time I'm 100% positive I'm pronouncing it wrong, um, but this time it's on purpose. Todd Rockita has said woke. Businesses are collaborating with their leftist allies to subvert the will of the people. He's not going to stand for it anymore. That's so good. So he's going to force the Hoosiers pensions. I love how he uses the basketball uh, <laughs> mascot, or I don't even know, maybe the, everybody's a Hoosier uh, yeah. in Indiana. Anyway, so the Hoosier pension plan can no longer invest in woke stuff. And uh, I thought I had the little juxtaposition of a ridiculous um, politician talking about woke big businesses and pension funds next to the for-profit insurance companies. Be interesting for the listener. 
Yeah, and well, and I, I think it's like you know one of the to me the the downsides of ESG has been that like there are like if you take the argument that there are a hundred trillion dollars out there that can't invest in certain things, which I think is is broadly speaking not true, um, but that's the way it's often presented. If you take that argument. Um, you know, then like the anti-ESG crowd goes like, well, we're just going to buy these like undervalued oil companies and make all kinds of excess money. Um, you know, and like, gosh, like I would love it if, uh, you know, I was the only person allowed to buy stock in the companies like early on. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Like, please bring it on more of this. Uh, (laughs) true. Yeah. Give this would be great for, uh, for our returns. Um, Do I have time yeah. for more or have I, I run I out of time? So. I okay, believe so. Okay, great. Because the next one is related to the Willis Towers Watson pensions and investment top 300 pension plans on earth. Mm. Um, and I was going to quiz you a little bit here, mm. uh, which is fun. I love And the quiz. Uh, I have data that of the biggest pension funds on earth. Um I'll point out that the numbers I'm using here are illustrative rather than precise because I noted mm-hmm. some of them were wrong when I was like, <laughs> wait, that's that's I, and I was like, no, that's wrong. No, but no, no, no. Anywho, um, what do you think the biggest pension fund on earth is as of 2022? GPIF. You still got it. Mm-hmm. The second biggest pension fund, hint, not technically mm. a pension fund, mm. is... Social Security Trust Fund? Norway. Norway. Yeah, they call it a pension fund to hide what it really is. Another P word. Oil? Petroleum. (laughs) (laughs) Yeah, that oil, that classic P word. Yeah. yeah, Um, yeah. Then we go to South Korea, 800 billion at the National Pension Service. Then we get to America. And this is not the Social Security Trust. This is another one. Do you can you name it? Oh, um, it's CalPERS. No, it isn't. It is the Federal what? Retirement Thrift. Are you on this podcast called the Free Money Podcast? <laughs> Jesus, I, what's the Federal Retirement Thrift? <laughs> it's the it's the defined contribution plan for all the government employees. Um, then we've got a fund called Bayerisch Versorgungskame, which has a hundred and twenty two billion. And I mentioned that just because the name's crazy. It's actually. Pretty yeah. far down the list. What do you think the biggest corporate plan is on uh, Earth? Raytheon. Holy shit! They're second. <laughs> you you almost nailed it. I was like Raytheon. Like that's like an ancient technology. They like when I hear Raytheon, I think like oh that was like around the moon landing. Yeah, like, that's yeah, what yeah, I think yeah. of. Yep. Biggest corporate plan: IBM. Hmm. International business machines. Is that what that stands for? Yep, it does. And, you know, and, and, and like I, I think, what a great segue for our guests. You know, because like we're talking today with Caitlin Rosenthal, who you know studied, you know, basically that's right the you know the evolution of accounting practices, international business machines, kind of the you know the perfect example of a you know a canonical, well-known business enterprise. So excited to have Caitlin on with us to talk to us about, I guess, the real history of these things. Hi, Caitlin. Welcome back from maternity leave. Congratulations on your baby. Thank you. It's great to be here. 
we just had the ultimate transition from old school technology discussion into you, Caitlin. And and we were trying to talk to the data. And I've seen from your bio, I was lo- looking around your website before we got on. Um, when you went to graduate school, you went to study the history of data. Tell us what that is, what you think's going on, and what are some of the interesting things you found out? Well, so before graduate school, I worked as a management consultant. Um, I was the person with the spreadsheet, kind of the junior person on the team in the back room. Um, and so I was doing a lot of calculations, mostly about people I'd never met um, in companies where I knew something about them, but I wasn't, you know, I, I had never like been in the factory floor or had never been like kind of where the things that they were making were being made. So it was all just abstract. Um, and I got interested in, you know, the upside and the downside of making decisions in that way. So if you have a spreadsheet of information, sometimes it makes things visible that you might not see otherwise. On the other hand, there are all kinds of things that are invisible. And so I was interested in the history of how we started making decisions um, with lots of data and not a lot of access to people. And that's what took me to grad school. Um, now, when I got to grad school, I assumed that the, for U.S. history, which is what I study, that the location for that would definitely be um, early textile mills and maybe the railroads. Like those would be the businesses where um, data started to become the most relevant. And so I started off my career looking at the account books of early 1900 um, textile mills and iron forges. And then I took uh, midway through that research, someone gave me account books for 19th century American slave plantations. And they were just as complex as the ones I was seeing for free factories and in some cases more complex. And so I started to think about why had these histories been left out of the business histories that um, huh. are more familiar to us? Almost like there's something inside of them that we weren't trying to understand, to, to, <laughs> to integrate, to understand. I mean, there's a, a management scholar named Bill Cook who's called it the denial of slavery in management studies. He says, you know, you don't have to look that deeply to realize that slave plantations were big businesses and they were run that way and sometimes very sophisticatedly. Um, and if we don't have to look that deeply, yet we keep looking overlooking it, well, it's not that we don't know this information; it's that we're in denial. So help help us like understand the scope of what we're in denial about. Because like I, you know, I know like my family has a history of being slave owners. I we've you know gone to those places, and I've like you know been like, holy shit, there's like a lot of blood on my hands. This was a big thing, or not my hands specifically, but um, whatever. Um, the, these were big organizations, right? And the big organizations that we usually hear about are like Josiah Wedgwood Pottery Studio, maybe like, you know, Tiffany, the the textile mills. Can you put it in context for us? So, I mean, I'm glad to hear that you already were familiar with this history because I was not familiar with it. I was like, well, I'm not from the South and I'm not, I don't like, my ancestors didn't own a plantation. So therefore I thought this history didn't really have much to do with me. And so I was then surprised to discover that these organizations are just as big as one of the the ones that you've just described. Um, so, for example, um, Josiah Woodward's Pottery or the Lowell Mills, like big famous operations. Most of those, the individual pottery works or textile mills, are maybe two hundred to six hundred workers. And then if you you start to have kind of multiple groupings of textile mills, and so then you can get up into the thousands of workers, but they're not being run as a single organization usually, and if you look at American slave plantations, many of them are much smaller, but the biggest ones 
um, get into the mid hundreds. And then if you go to include the Caribbean, um, you have plantations of five or 600 and then plantations that are five or 600 and are part of what you might almost call a multi-divisional plantation where someone owns multiple plantations. So they have a total of say 5,000 enslaved people working, working under them. And so that begins to be the scale of the early railroads. Um, and it's really big business, um, in a sense that I had never realized. Yeah, I, I mean, I think the only reason I had an intro into it was that my dad came to it from like a conservative, wow, these slave owners are really sophisticated guys standpoint. And I was like, wait a freaking second. <laughs> That's an issue I still have. Sometimes I talk about how they use sophisticated techniques and people think that that's like a good thing. I one time had someone <laughs> say to me, like I said, I studied the history of slavery and capitalism. And they say, oh, well, is this like a good thing about slavery that created capitalism? I was like, no, no, this is like a bad thing about <laughs> capitalism that it was for slavery to thrive and grow, right? So it's like we have to think about it both ways. That's like when my daughter asked me, is capitalism when one person eats another person? I was like, no, that's cannibalism, but it's a, it's close. There's something we can learn from that conversation. Yeah, exactly. Yeah, it, yeah, exactly. Well, and I guess like, you know, one thing that I, you know, uh, you know, didn't ask you about on email, but you know, that's marinating right now is like, you know, if you have, like my partner works for a startup, right. And I'm fond of saying that, you know, if you're going to be a billion dollar startup, you need an insane management philosophy. Um, and you know, a lot of very, you know, kind of adherent employees. Um, who will go along with your gambits. Um, you know, if you think about, you know, the 1700s, 1800s, you know, whatever, there are a lot of people who could have gambits and ideas. And, you know, maybe up in the textile mills, they wouldn't find a population of people that would go along with them. How does the, the non-mobility of labor play into this? I mean, this is something that, what I study is like, you talk to two sets of people, either they're really surprised or they're like, already, don't we already know this? So in the phase <laughs> of my research, when I was surprised, I spent a lot of time thinking about like why this would be so. It just seemed like such a puzzle that um, slave plantations were able to implement um, these advanced technologies at such a uh, advanced scale. Now, not all of them did, but some of them did. And I think that the non-mobility of labor is a huge part of it. Like when I looked at the account books of New England textile mills, they're full of workers who quit. And you know, a lot of these workers are poorly compensated. Their circumstances are not fabulous. Like it's not like a only a case for celebration, but they have the ability to quit. Um, and so they leave for a variety of other things. And you see that marked in the margins of the account books. And you know, the People running those factories, if they try to speed up the pace of labor and they push it too far, people quit. So in a way, their management problem for a textile mill is just to keep the operation running. Um, by contrast, on um, a slave plantation, enslaved people are certainly uh, pushing back against what's happening to them, but they just have much less um, opportunity to push back in big scale ways. For them to quit is to run away, to escape from the plantation. And that's just a huge, massive sacrifice for them. Um, and like just that ability to move is a sign of so much essential freedom. But And if you don't have to deal with it, you have 200 mobile workers that you know you're going to have again next year, then you can strategize and run experiments with labor in a way that's simply impossible if every time you want someone to do something new, you have to negotiate with them. Mm, yeah, that's, I mean, so like, let's talk about, you know, I mean, I guess we're, you know, talking at trying to see business from a standpoint that just views people as like a cost and a raw input 
let's talk about like what people were worth back then. Uh, let's draw the line. Um, you know, like how did the price of enslaved people fluctuate like in the lead up to the Civil War? So if we started the Civil War, the kind of one useful piece of information is that the price of enslaved people is very high on the eve of the Civil War, hmm. which means that enslavers didn't really see the war coming. Um, and even if they did see the war coming, they didn't believe that it was going to fundamentally threaten the institution of slavery. Like they didn't really hmm. believe they were going to lose their property. And maybe if they did think slavery was really under threat, I mean, after all, they do go to war. So right. in some level, they believe it's under threat. But maybe they thought they would be compensated for enslaved people. Like when slavery had ended at other points um, in the new world over the previous like 50 years before the civil war, enslavers were usually paid off for their slaves. Like when slavery ends in the British empire, in, um, people get paid for every enslaved person they owned. Um, and there are other examples of compensated emancipation. So on the eve of the civil war, the price of enslaved people is very high. Um, in money at the time, a prime slave which would be usually a male slave of a particular age, um, like a middle age who can do a lot of work um, and has no no disabilities, maybe extra skilled. So that's like prime slave. And it's a horrifying language. It's like the language is exactly the same <laughs> using to like, you know, denominate bales of cotton and bushels of wheat. It sounds like commodity grading. So they have prime second class, you know, it sounds, it's horrible, horrible language. Well, but that's going to be like $1,400. And that's almost doubled maybe more than doubled from about 15 years earlier. So it's like, it's been a good investment over the that previous 15 years. Now, if you take a longer time period, the price is very volatile. It, you know, the price in 1860 is not that much higher than the price um, in 1837 when there's a huge bubble. Hmm. So the price of slaves runs up really fast and then crashes. So over like 20 years, it's a great investment over... 40, 40 years, it's uh, much more like a volatile up and down. But people, it doesn't stop people from giving investment advice, you know, based on their expectations about what's going to happen with to, ens to enslaved people and to the price of slaves. Because whenever someone owns an enslaved person, they both have the rights to their labor. And then they also have an asset that they're hoping is going to appreciate in value over time. I mean, Thomas That's Jefferson famously recommended to people that they put their extra um, earnings and slaves, because in addition to the labor that they got, they earned a silent profit from their appreciation and value. Woof. Uh, <laughs> that's just, there's so much to go into on that. I mean, like, I, I think like, you know, that this, that slaves were trading at near highs right before the civil war. I think that's probably useful for a lot of people who are thinking about the way that, you know, we might move away from oil and what that might look like. Um, you know, I, I guess, you know, you talked about, you know, something that ties very closely to depreciation, which I want to zoom in on, um, like the management information systems of these plantations must have had a way of dealing with that silent profit. Like, you know, as the person gets older and more capable, they become more valuable. Um, and that flows through the accounts. It, is that the first time we see depreciation? So depreciation has a long history as like an occasional concept. So you can find um, individual businesses using the uh, something like depreciation for a long time. Also, people talk about the depreciation of currency much earlier than this. But if you're thinking about businesses regularly depreciating their assets, um, it's emerging in the railroads. And at the same time, it's being used by slaveholders. Um, there's a, a, a Scottish accountant who moves to the United States and becomes a slave owner named Thomas Affleck. And he sells an accounting 
it's like a combination between an accounting instruction book and like a Mad Libs, like fill in the blanks accounting. If you don't know how to do your accounting, you can do it here. And he has a very early description of how to calculate depreciation of people. And it's, it's the first edition I think is in 1848. And that's a moment when it would, there are very few uh, like accounting textbooks that describe depreciation. So this is early. And he says, you know, when you are running a plantation, you have an overseer and you have to make sure that the overseer um, treats enslaved people so that you can maximize their appreciation as they grow older and learn new skills and so that you can minimize their depreciation over time. And he instructs people to take an inventory of enslaved people at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. And each individual enslaved person is repriced at the beginning of the year and the end of the year. And it could be an individual change, like someone becomes ill or a, you know, a 10 year old becomes 11 and therefore can be, you know, can do more work in the fields. Um, but, or it could be market change, like the price just of everyone went up. Um, and so you're supposed to compare the beginning of the year and the end of the year. And then you'll know if you have an addition, an appreciation of value or a depreciation. It's like a mix of like straight line and mark to market appreciation that they're figuring out how to adapt to people. <laughs> how, I mean, has any, like, I, this is a bit of a random question, which is around the, the human capital concept. Um, and hearing you talk about the depreciation of human beings, um, I have seen a bunch of people today trying to think through the value of human capital and what is what is technology like Uber or Airbnb do to us unlocking new forms of of capital, right? Human capital and the ability to drive performance. Does any of that work that has been linked to the depreciation of slaves, which are humans and seem like they were treated as capital? Um, does that link, like tie into any of the work you would be doing today and trying to think through, you know, the models, I'm not talking about the specific data points, but it's, I mean, so they never call it human capital, right? But I mean, okay. I, that phrase, cause that's what they're doing. They're doing a calculation about human capital. And I suppose, I mean, the, one of the ways that I've been thinking about this is, you know, when we talk about like human capital, it's, we tend to talk about it as if this it's like this warm and fuzzy thing. Like yeah. if we could just learn to value human capital better, like that's going to somehow make things more humane. And I think like this is a lesson in how valuing human capital on its own doesn't get you to better practices. Mm. Now, on one level, people say, you know, well, if people are paying attention to human capital, didn't make enslavers like treat enslaved people better. I think that's sometimes true, um, but it's definitely not always true. Yeah. Um, so you look at these inventories and, enslaved people go up in value, but then of course they eventually also go down in value. That's um, right. And you have elderly people on plantations valued at zero. Um, and that's on an annual inventory. Um, if you look at sale documents, you can actually sometimes find negative valuations for people um, where they would take someone and they'll put, where I've seen this is in a, like a list of people put up for sale and they have people bundled together. Um, like a prime age man and a, and his son, and then an elderly person. And that elderly person is valued at negative 50 or $100. So you have $800 plus $300 plus negative 100, and it's bundled together. And the slaveholder might say, oh, well, this is a more humane because we're keeping the family together. But actually, they're figuring out how to unload this like negative human capital that mm. they are responsible for, even though people are past the point of, of fail, good labor. So it's like putting human capital on a balance sheet gets you some more information. And it's like, I think it can be a really good step, 
but it's like not the whole step unless you think about, well, what do I do when the human capital data that I'm gathering points me towards a set of decisions that maybe are not good ones, right? Just like getting the data doesn't get us to the ethical conversation. Yeah. If, it, if it's a productive asset, may, maybe there's a pathway to saying, oh, you're going to invest and protect this productive asset and you're going to, the lives will be better. But that that ignores the fact that so much of our lives are in a non-productive phase. And, and that's like the institution of retirement, which, you know, goes back a thousand years to Romans trying to like take care of their soldiers coming back from the war. Um, they would grant them these pensions because they didn't want Roman soldiers sitting on the street. It would harm, you know, recruitment. Um, and, and so they gave, they invented this thing called the pension. And, and that was, you know, th those were almost slaves as well. The Roman armies at the time, it was just a fascinating way to look at this issue. And, and I'm just curious what we can take away in our work and, and our listeners hear us rattle on about the power of data and analytics and, we even go back to the Babylonians sometimes and how they were using cuneiform tablets to like think about what crops to plant because it would, you know, they would track the flow of the Euphrates River. Anyway, um, we love data. Uh, and so what are the takeaways from your work that we should really be mindful of as we think about our own analysis of this community of pension funds and, and investors? Well, I, I do... Sometimes like historians generally don't like data. We are tend to be like qualitative bunch. I am unusual in that I got into this because I like data. Um, but when I present this work, often a question I get is, well, this doesn't this just show the violence of numbers? And I actually think that's like really fundamentally wrong. I think this shows us the limitations of numbers. Anytime you have data, it makes some things visible and it makes other things invisible. Um, and I think the key is to always be thinking about the things that are invisible. So you need to be thoughtful about what data you're going to make decisions about, but then every set of data has its limitations. Um, so what are the things that are missing if we just make a decision based on this data? And I think if you're always bringing that perspective to data, you're in less danger of replicating these, these conversations. And I think the history of slavery, that's one of the things it can do for us. I mean, on the one hand, it can illuminate how some of these problems never went away. Like people ask me about reparations and I'm like, you can just like trace this all the way back to the civil war. And all we've done is like, you know, perpetuate this problem over the past 150 years. And we have plenty of data to like, think about how to make things better. Really? But I think there's also, yeah, there's lots of like, like we lot need of more data. of that. We need that data. <laughs> yeah. Can yeah, I just that data? stop you there? Like, I feel <laughs> like we could, if that data is there, let's get that data into the hands of people that are like purposefully shuttering their eyeballs to the issue. It seems like there's an entire party in our country doing that right now. I mean, my, my take here is that the, the lack of data and the perception that this is distance is, is mostly an excuse. Okay. You know, in any one given case, right. We might be able to find, we might or might not have the data, right. You go some plantations, the data survives some, it doesn't. But on a grand scale, we could have enough data that we could do pretty good calculations, which means that the problem is not the data. The problem is kind of about political will, which goes back to, to what you're pointing to there. But I think at least like looking at the economic records of slavery can help remind people that thinking about reparations is not just like a nice thing to do. It's about real debts that are owed 
or people who worked and were sold, bought and sold for free. But but setting that aside, I think we can also learn, like, let's say you have a, an, an inventory of slavery, of enslaved people. You have a list of names and a list of prices and ages. And like, there's one that I'm thinking of in particular that um, is from a planter named James Green Carson. And it's remarkable. And a historian named Dana Ramey Berry also writes about this. Um, it's remarkable because on that document, he tells you how he priced children. And he says, children zero to 10, like zero to one years old, um, $25. But if they make it to one, $75, because you know the, the child mortality is very high. And then from one to 10, they go up $25 a year. And then after they're 10, it's priced by the person because you know the, someone is tall and strong, someone is um, more compliant, someone is trying to escape. And so they like give individual prices. And then, um, so you, you look at that piece of data and we are distant enough from slavery that I, we find it remarkably shocking. I think it's like, you look at that and you're like immediately aware of what's not counted in that, in that data and the way it's devaluing children. And I mean, the horror that you get when you look at it is just tangible. Um, but then you take a few steps away and I think you could be entering that data into a spreadsheet and you can become more distant from it and start to forget about all the things that are there. And I think if we look at modern data, we're just mostly spending our time with the forgetting part where we enter the information and we do the calculations and then we don't remember that there's actually people behind that. And in many cases, it's not forced labor, um, but it may be um, labor that where people don't have mobility or they can't move. It may be um, people who don't have access to real political rights, or and, and certainly it's often people who aren't being paid to live in wage. So right, we we it's easy to forget with the modern data. And I think that the historical data can remind us that well, those people made it was easy for them to forget too, and look what they were forgetting. And if we tried to not repeat that, what kinds of things would we be looking for? Wow, I mean, it just such a crazy like. You know, I, I guess, you know, there's this notion called fiduciary capitalism, you know, where like that kind of takes as a tenet that if you own a thing, you are going to be like inherently aligned with the with maximizing its long term value. Um, and what this conversation has done for me is sort of elucidate how the dimensionality of that long term value is so nuanced, right? Like the, you know, that planter might have been taking steps to maximize the long-term value of his, uh, you know, I guess, possessions as he saw it. Um, but, you know, gosh, how misaligned that is with their long-term manifesting of the most effective value. And I guess, you know, the, that gap is really our imaginative task as analysts, it sounds like you're saying. Yeah, I think putting it that way is really powerful to think about it as an imaginative task. Um, Dana Ramey-Berry, who I referenced, she has a book called The Price for Our Pound of Flesh that's about the value of enslaved people from cradle to grave. And she wrote, describes what she calls the spirit or soul value of people. And she says, as enslaved people got older, their market value dropped. And it, that has all kinds of problems with it, but it also could create freedom for people to um, be able to be valued in very different ways. Um, and also how important it was for individual enslaved people to be aware that their own value was different from, from the market value. I mean, to, mm. to give another totally horrifying example, you look at um, prices and you find um, a woman with a first child has a very high price. 
And that's because this woman is fertile and has survived childbirth and so is likely to continue reproducing. And in a certain way, maybe that means that she and her children are being valued, but not in the broader way that that we should be thinking about yeah. it, right? When maybe it doesn't, you said this like imaginative task, it doesn't take that much imagination once you realize that. But I think in our modern data where we're more accustomed to forgetting, it's our job to think about what things we might be overlooking there. The net present value of future returns from your children getting incorporated <laughs> into your value, just my brain exploded. Yeah. No, it's very hard. <laughs> I had a moment looking at one of these records where it has my I have I have three kids. Um, at the time I had two, and you know, the names of my two children are listed in the inventory, Edward and Eliza. And I was both horrified and then I also realized, you know, that sometimes when I'm entering this data, even even when I'm doing the research, I am just entering the data sometimes like zooming along and I miss the really human part and you need these moments and reminders to bring you back um, to remember those things. So it's like, I, I, I said to someone, it's like sometimes what you need is like slow data. We always need like big and fast data, but then we need like a little slow data also to start remembering what might not be there. Because I think if things go, like if you get into the, this kind of data flow, then that is facilitates the forgetting of these big important questions. Think of Caitlin, you you that like so dovetails with what we were talking about at yeah, the beginning of this episode. What what a necessary conversation. Thank you so much for coming yeah. on and like telling us about your work. And we're so excited to, you know, track the next 50 years of it. Well, I really enjoyed the conversation. I mean, enjoyed is the wrong word, but yeah. <laughs> conversation. Thanks for doing this work. Thank you, Caitlin. We'll have you of back course. after your next book for sure. It's amazing. Yeah. Keep up the great work. Long distance high five. Ah, I don't know how to remove it. There it is. <laughs> wow. Um, Slow wow. data, also known as history. I, I, I mean, yeah. Right? Like, yeah, how funny right? that historians don't like data. Like, what the hell are they doing? <laughs> well, I, I think that it's like, you know, a discipline that, you know, does. I mean, history is like my family business. Um, yeah. You know, and like, I mean, like longtime listeners know both of my grandparents are, are historians who are, you know, very associated with the field of Mormon studies. And like kind of a big deal. The, Kind of a big deal. Nobody. I mean, we should have them on the podcast at some point. But um, the you know, like I always thought of it as this very qualitative, um, you know, kind of narrative heavy practice because you know the work that my grandparents were doing was so much around like finding a diary from the 1840s, you know, like and figuring out what women back then were thinking, right? Um, but you can tell these bigger stories with that, with, you know, the assemblage of, of those sorts of uh, anecdata, you know, and that's really all we have to grasp the way that the past was. Yeah, I love it. I mean, look, I, I think that interview was outstanding. Um, I want to I, I, I de- so I live in this place which has a vibe of libertarian paradise. It's called Silicon Valley. And the concept of silicon valley is more 
the mindset than the place. The place is actually very liberal, but this notion of like technology transforming the world, it's filled with these people that are libertarian. And, and I see an absolute, I mean, is ignorance the right word or, or rejection that Mm. these things still matter? You know, mm. because I think there is a desire to claim the um, credit for the value that's been created by, you know, their ecosystem. They want to have yeah. the credit for that. And yeah. and what I want is to not diminish like their self-aggrandizing necessarily, but to make it more nuanced with like this context of like the history and the data of government intervention in technology and oh by the way slavery i mean yep the fact that we can i I really want at some point to have her on and be like can we just have a conversation where we trace like slaves to today and we go (laughs) we go through like segregation we go through redlining we go through you know all of the stuff that's going on so that when we're finally at the end of the conversation they're like yeah maybe affirmative action isn't such a bad thing you know yeah um, yeah i mean that's a that's a conference concept right there I, I feel like you know we could we could get a pretty good day of learning together for folks um is this a real you know, free money conference or is this the boondoggle maybe it's uh, it's both mm. Yeah, I mean, like, I, I there's no there's no rule that says the boondoggle can't be productive and useful. I thought that uh, was the idea, though, that like we we put up a bunch of like PDFs and websites, and then we, we <laughs> you show up and we give you materials, but you just go to the pool. I thought that was our yeah, boondoggle yeah, yeah. idea. That was the boondoggle <laughs> idea, but like, what if <laughs> what we if actually used that time? <laughs> yeah, like yeah, like what if after arriving at the pool there was like a panel there? True. Uh, you know, and at that panel it was like Caitlin and like Darren Dodson and yes. like uh, you know, a couple of other folks like that, you know, we know and love talking about the practicalities here cuz I don't think that there's that much dialogue between the work that Caitlin's doing and the allocator community, yep. right? Like and the 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 kind of, you know, the morality of these things anyway slow um, data that's another t-shirt slow data. let's get the slow that, data that is I, I think like that is a t-shirt we may actually make uh, i like that in a yeah you know i think that'd be great but oh man these the sound effect i gotta get a real like, panel or something oh i heard it that's sound, sound like effect. A, something thudding there was a thud yeah, yeah, yeah. powered by riverside fm <laughs> Riverside. I wonder if they know that the only time we use that is to be like, this is the worst platform. Uh, <laughs> yeah, just as it's totally What's hard for you lately. Um, I, I, my, mine is a little bit of a meta concept, which is I think it's mm. hard to remember the hard things. And I'll tell you why. That's a great. Yeah. Um, so I think part of the reason people have multiple children, especially their third children, their third child, is because they can't remember how hard it is. Because they're sleep deprived, mm. so they're in the they're in the heart of darkness, and they're like, "I will never." You know, you're up at three in the morning. It's your third time that you've been up. You're changing a diaper. A kid's barfing. You know, you're like, "I will never do this again." And then you pass out, and it's all a blur. And four years later, yeah. you're like, "I don't even know if I remember the story you're telling me to your wife." <laughs> and yep. it's because sleep deprivation screws up your long term memory. And so my advice, this is a bit, this is part tip, 
and part uh, parenting advice as well as me acknowledging hard things is like I think you should keep a journal. You know, mm. because I think when you when you journal this stuff out, you start to be like, oh, what was what was like month four like of my newborn? And you open it up and it's like I cried again today four times. And you're like, I don't remember crying. You know, <laughs> I don't remember the anxiety like and I remember this because a good friend of mine who went to the Olympics as a rower, he kept a journal every day so that he would never go to the Olympics again. <laughs> Because he's like, I don't want to get four years from now and think, oh, it wasn't that bad. He's like, no, yeah, it was that bad. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That seems pretty bad. I mean, yeah, ro- I, I don't know if I told you, I just got a rowing machine again. So you uh, understand for- the pain. I, I mean, I'm beginning to. Yeah, like I rode it. I rode for a little bit in, in high school, not not the way you rode, but uh, you know, I was like, you know, I'm I'm getting to be 35. It's time to time time to time to do some cardio, right? For sure. Um, but yeah, like I mean. The my my go to work uh, workout playlist has been rowers are masochists on Spotify. I will uh, check that out. <laughs> By the way, oh, sorry, Ro- rowists are sadists. Is Ro- the, is oh, that's the, true. Is, we are. My, yeah. I've set a new record this week for plank. I did a a seven and a half minute plank, perfect form. Jesus. Yeah. Jesus. Underneath wow. all of this covering, Professor is a Abs over here. Yeah. No, there's a lot yeah, of covering, I mean- but underneath it. <laughs> There's a six pack under there somewhere. Wow. Yep. I mean, I, I think that the keeping a, di- a journal thing is a really like I, I'd say it's been hard for me to keep a journal. Um, like I have this um, like practice. I have like I have a do- Google Doc that I is probably like at this point, 400 pages long or 500 pages. Wow. Long. Good um, for you. And yeah, it well, it's, it's a pretty good note taking system. I, my grandmother, um, like, you know, Claudia Bushman, for those who, are, who know, um is like it's like there's like a meme in the mormon community that like every time you see claudia bushman you're like um shit i should be writing in my journal uh because that's gonna say you gotta take a shot (laughs) it's like a drinking game every every time you see my grandmother you gotta you gotta take a shot that's a very classic mormon meme totally mormon totally gentiles wouldn't understand uh but yeah like the so i i have been writing in this journal basically my whole life every five weeks Mm. and it's it's remarkable how consistent the pattern of like not writing in it and then writing in it five weeks later is um you know and i yeah i i mean even that has been so valuable but i think the hard thing is like you know you see something that brings so much benefit in terms of mindfulness in terms of remembering the trauma that you went through and you know i mean like i i was thinking about doing the olympics and now yeah you know because you said you know because you said it was hard i probably won't um yeah you know, no i know you like, were considering it but if you had yeah, your journal yeah. so the thing with stress is you are often end up sleep deprived and sleep deprivation mm-hmm. drives you to lose your long-term memories of that time. And so it's this vicious cycle where then you end up redoing all the stupid sh- shit that got you stressed because you, yeah. you lost the memory. And I think part of that is Darwinian to push us to like go have more babies. You know, oh, yeah, yep. you can have another baby. Like it's no problem. And then you get into it and you're divorced, you know. It's too hard. I think there, liter- there literally is an evolutionary mechanism where women forget the pain of childbirth. Must um, It must be. Because yeah, it looks like they're, hard they're, having witnessed yeah, it. Yeah, I mean, yeah, it seems like, you know, I mean, transgenderism is, you know, one of the, like a lot of my trans sisters are like, I wish I could bear child, uh, children. And, you know, maybe it would be great. But 
um that's not a that's not a, a thing i particularly uh, <laughs> envy this is um anyway it's time for our only reliable sound effect Oh, it takes me to a place of joy and panic as I worry about yeah. answering these questions. It's time. I mean, like you, you gave me the quiz earlier. It's only fair, you know, um, <laughs> the, this is the time, you know, but just like, if you've gotten this far, you, you know, you're just getting to know us, um, you know, you should know we answer questions in every podcast and you can ask them freemoneypod at gmail.com or mm -hmm. go onto our website, freemoneypodcast.com. And there is a form you can use that increasingly works. Um, does it, you know, and oh, it does because no, I it tested does. it. I sent you a test. Yeah. Yep. Yeah. 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 You were like, all right, let's see. Let's see if this, uh, yeah, I've been making, yeah, well, some we had a guest be like, I asked you a question and one day Ashby better answer it. And I looked at you on yeah, here yeah, and yeah, I yeah. was like, this is our technology. This is what's happening. Yep. <laughs> yeah. Well, well, I mean like focusing on slow data really, you know, yeah. uh, <laughs> it got slow us. data. Um, right, yeah, exactly. Me. This is, I mean, like, wow, it's almost like this was planned. What's the most widely misinterpreted episode of financial history you're familiar with? Oh, my God. That is almost like this is planned. Wow. Um, I mean, yeah. And it's funny. Some of my answer to this, I have already uh, mistakenly cannibalized by talking about mm. the Roman history of pensions. Mm. Uh, but what I was going to say is I think people really misunderstand this transition from defined benefit to defined contribution pension plans. Everybody's talks about pensions. Oh, I have a pension. And young people don't really understand that, that their history with pensions is fundamentally different than their parents. And it's really happened in the 80s, 90s, and knots as the Americans, the Japanese, the British, the Germans moved away from defined benefit plans towards um, defined contribution. And I think it merits just going back and redefining for people what these are because they are material. A defined benefit plan promised you an amount based on service, um, salary, seniority. You could calculate an amount, and that amount would generally be paid through life. Now, in the case of the Romans, you had to be 16 years in the military. You know, this is 2,000 years ago. 16 years in the military, they gave you a lump sum. Mm. But starting in Germany in the 1900s with Bismarck, um, famous for giving the name to Bismarck Key, a very famous rap artist. But before Bismarck Also Key, for the, the pointy hat. The pointy exactly. Hat. You know Bismarck Key. Um, they're remaking Bismarcky songs now. I, I, this is a real non sequitur. Uh, that's how and old we are. You say I'm just a friend. Exactly. They just redid that. Did you know that? I mean, hey, it's a it's great a track. Good bop. A good bop never dies. Baby, you. <laughs> that's about how good he sings, by the way. Um, anywho, yeah. So Bismarck started the modern pension, and then American Express in the U.S over 100 years ago, built a defined benefit pension. And we had 40 to 50 glorious years of cradle to grave retirement security. And then we realized, wait a second, people aren't going to die at age 67. They're going to die at 97. And it's very costly. And the government doesn't want to do it. And so what do we do? Well, let's push everybody to take individual responsibility, which is another way of saying, let's give you access to the WebMD website. And you can diagnose yourself drugs and do surgery on yourself. It's very similar to that. Similar <laughs> concept. 
Um, and so now we're in this phase where when you as a young adult say, I have a pension, you really mean something fundamentally different than your grandparents that said they had a pension. Mm, mm-hmm, it means mm-hmm. You're taking care of yourself, whereas they're being taken care of. And so I just, I, I think in terms of the history of pensions, I think that concept, defined benefit to define contribution, sometimes is lost on my students in particular. And so mm-hmm. here we go. We're reconciling it. That's a great one. I mean, I, I think that, you know, yeah, it's, it's when you're looking at the way that words change their meaning over time, um, you know, it's like, like, I, I think the subtleties that that in, sort of an analysis introduces can be so valuable, right? Like, I mean, the, just the very fact that pension means something different now than it did 50 years ago. Um, and we can lament the decline of pensions. Um, but we also have to, you know, talk about this change in state. Um, I think mine is uh, is is the tulip bubble, um, you know the which. Are like, you going to say I this wasn't like, a bubble and those tulips were fairly valued? I mean, I think on the this of all podcasts, yes. we have to. <laughs> we got to say <laughs> that those bulbs we were out. rare, mofo. <laughs> <laughs> we got to put it. I mean, like gardening bulbs are like you know a great like. Uh, I mean, I, by the honestly, way, it's the I fall. Like, plant your bulbs. Yeah, yeah. Plant your bulbs, baby. Uh, it's a little prelude for later. But like, I, I, there's this one book, Extraordinary Popular Delusions and the Madness of Crowds by Charles McKay that mm. is like, you know, inside of a canon of like, this is the way it is type books, including like The Visible Hand by Alfred Chandler, which Caitlin really debunks a lot in mm. her book. Um, like in her work, I, I view in many ways as being a direct corrective of that. But um Charles McKay's work was kind of like um, it created this idea that, you know, these people in the sepia tone days of yore were just sort of running around and like, you know, they were like, you know, and like, I think it overstates the relevance of the tulip bubble relative to, you know, the long term like economics of the Netherlands. Um, and it also like, you know, as is typical with these things, tends to understate the sophistication of all of the actors involved. Um, you know, so like, it's not the case that everyone involved was just a dingus and had no ability to, you know, understand anything. Um, and it's not the case that these types of phenomena are like so easy to diagnose and stand outside of, you know, when you're having them, it's kind of like independence porn for a certain kind of of person to look back on the past and be like, oh, I would never do something so silly as that, Um, coming through the crypt. Doe bubble, maybe? How's that ape you bought going? <laughs> I mean, I like I still think the crypto that well, I think I, I think I owe like three hundred dollars in cryptocurrency that I bought largely by accident. Um yeah. Yeah. You know, um, yeah, it ugh. It's the future. It, it's blockchaining. <laughs> <laughs> You're so sincere with that. I, I mean, so many things are the future, right? They are. Um, this is a really interesting question. Okay. Uh, this next one. Um, somebody has been doing some demography. How should I think about the intersection of demographics and the economy? Mm. Some analysts are forecasting decade-long recessions. I'm just going to repeat that. Decade-long recessions based on a global de-risking of the capital base to serve our aging population. It's probably mostly hyperbole. Mm-hmm. But how much, what percent hyperbole do you think this is? 10%, 15%? So there's, there's aspects to this that it's an entirely new industry. 
and serving mm. the elderly, whether it's smart homes, hospitals, elder care, um, health care, all of this stuff flows into this industry that quite obviously didn't exist 100 years ago because people didn't live that long. And so just as we have a high-tech industry, we are going to have a, a new industry around serving people that are you know, in their 80s, 90s, and into the 100s. And I think the question is not about that, but I just wanted to point out that like, if we're worried about dynamic, you know, economies and what population aging will, you know, will do to that dynamism, I think the first thing to note is like it, there's going to be a lot of wealth in that space and they're going to be paying for a lot of stuff. Um, and so services, baby. Yeah. Services, you know, artificial, intelligent um scooters that you sit on aka little rascals it's like a mm-hmm. an, an automated little rascal so you know it's going to be interesting and i don't see it as like necessarily this is a zero sum game which is the way the question was phrased like wow these guys were invested in equities and now they're going to need to de-risk into fixed income assets it's like yeah but how many americans have their entire retirement nest egg locked up in a house they're going to sell that house. Now that money is freewheeling out in the economy as they pay through to the end of their life. So yep. I, I don't know how to put a number on 10% or 15%. I will tell you that a lot of people are very worried about the national retirement ages in Europe, 55, 58, 59, and people living over 100. You know, It's like, you're going to be a retiree for half a century in some of these cases. And that is just too expensive. The, you know, yeah. the replacement rate can't be what it is today because there, I think it's called a dependency ratio. Um, mm-hmm. And that dependency ratio usually refers to pay as you go pension systems where a government will say, all right, I have this many taxpayers per retiree. That's going to go from like 10 to one to like two to one to yeah. one to one pretty soon in those places. And so yeah. we need people to work longer. It sucks, but it's true. Um, it seems like antithetical to the free money uh, argument to tell people to work. But well, we, you know, or open your borders, right? Yeah, like, or open I, your borders. <laughs> yeah. Like, I, I mean, I, I feel like, you know, there's there's like, um, you know, growth based on more mouths to feed. Yeah. Right? That has been like the, you know, one of the big um, contributors to economic growth over the long time over a long time period that's gone in the developed world um you know and like as you say europe seems like it's kind of the worst of all worlds like demographically energy wise um yeah i i I would put the world ending though my my probability on the world ending and a multi-decade recession happening is is like probably like one one percent um yeah you know i'm hoping level event yeah that the world doesn't end that's my yeah, sincere aspiration that we don't all die. Yeah, I mean, I do think that like if we were to have a protracted recession or depression, that elder care assets would do fine during it. True. <laughs> um, all right, last question. All right, I heard a GP. This is real on Twitter. This GP was like, I always tell emerging managers whenever they're talking to an institution to go around the allocator and go straight to the organization's board. Yep. Uh, what do you think of that advice? <laughs> I think it's terrible. I, I even even if they would listen to you. <laughs> so 
here's the here like look you, sorry governance expert here sorry yeah, about, yeah, sorry yeah, about yeah. it wrote a couple books um but, but look here they could give you advice but you're going to need to go through the allocator i mean yeah. i i guess i to to give our question or whatever or maybe you saw this on the twitter so i don't even need to be nice yeah, yeah but to yeah. give that individual credit maybe there's like an endowment where the board which is often made up of like very sophisticated people on an investment committee maybe like they have more influence in general the mm. boards of pension funds foundations sovereign funds um those board members are almost barred at times from yeah. delivering opportunities into the staff um it, not always but almost all and, and the investment professionals also in my experience sort of barf when their board members are like, hey, would you just take a look at this deal for me as a friend of mine? It's yeah. like, yeah. wow, like you sent me this on an email and it's coming from the board who has no business looking at deals. By the way, there's a separation between governance and management. That's why we have corporate structures. And so then the person who is the manager of the portfolio will almost be obligated to look harder and run you through a more rigorous process if that's how you came in through the door. I'm not saying they'll mm. reject you outright, but they will be worried about the New York Times test. What happens when this is published on the front page of the New York Times? Will I look mm -hmm. like I am like sucking up to my board member or will I look like I'm doing my job? So. Yep. My advice is to just find the right person in the organization. Usually it's a chief investment officer who will give you that level of credibility and then hand you off to the teammate, you know, that will run the private equity book or run the emerging manager program or do the hedge funds. CIO, sometimes not even CEO. CEO is off dealing with stakeholders. Um, yeah. The CIO is the head of the investment function. So anyway, that's what I would do. I, th I think it like the, the existence of this advice, I, I brought it into this segment because I wanted to sort of talk about like how the people who start these kinds of organizations affects the kind of advice that is out there about them. Um, yeah, you know, because like th this, this advice is consistent with like the private equity guy. I'm going to do it my way, get out of my way or whatever. Yeah. Uh, you know, kind of approach. Was the person who gave this advice married to Donald Trump's daughter? You know, I, I do think there were some tweets that indicated that they may have spent some time at the Four Seasons Garden and Landscaping <laughs> business or I'll you know, tell maybe you, Mar a Lago. That's how I'm blanking on the guy's name. Who's Oh Hed Kushner? Yeah, Herod. Uh yeah, yeah, yeah. J Red. J Red mm -hmm. did exactly this, right? His the, the staff mm -hmm. was going to reject him and MBS swooped in. So if you mm. happen to know the head of a government, a crown prince, as it were, that's not a bad one to go and woo. Um, but that's a very unique case, which I'm thinking is actually a live criminal case. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like, well, and, and, I mean, in any, even if there aren't criminal implications, they're definitely like, I'm trying to get some capital so I can, you know, make money off of it not yeah. so that i can you know generate value um anyway we got the last segment here which is i think what everybody you know came here for you made it <laughs> that almost blew me out of my chair i was not you ready for that 
Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean, I you know, it's really like increasing levels of chaos. Just reminder, <laughs> by the way. Was that a listener us. submission? No, it wasn't, but <laughs> the next one could be. Um, Submit if, your <laughs> soundtrack idea yeah. and we will play. Yeah, exactly. There will be a form live on the site for that by the time that this goes up. Um, the What's your garden tip for me? What do you got? It's heat. It's heat related. Oh, I yeah. got to come at yeah. you with the heat because we had three days in the high uh, high hundreds. No, that would be very high. 108, 110. Mm-hmm. Um, and here are the tips. One, this is a real brain scratcher. Do not use fertilizer when it's hot. Apparently, mm. the fertilizer gets extra hot and it can kind of burn. Oh, yeah. It's a, they may, fertilizer is a big ingredient in bombs. Ah, so that could be related to that. So I don't do all the research, but I am glad I've got you on the pod here. I remember <laughs> the Timothy McVeigh now. I was just thinking about yeah, that. I yeah. think he yeah. may be dead or like buried in a prison somewhere in Colorado. Yeah. Anyway, and that was yeah. fertilizer related. So yeah. this is a pretty good tip. Don't use fertilizer <laughs> near an open flame. Or when it's 110 degrees. But it's funny. Fertilizer came a lot when I was Googling over the weekend, like how to protect my plants. Mm. Don't prune when it's too hot. Yep. You knew that. God, you're on it. Do weed. Do weed. Mm. Do not prune. Interesting. Yeah, weed. Because you don't want the weeds taking the the wetness. Yep. And Mm. you don't want to prune because then again, you're losing some of the moisture out of the plant. Um. The one that seems obvious is water in the morning, put it under the yep. shade if you can. Here's another good one, though. Um, water below the surface. And if you struggle mm. to do that, this is going to get a real uh, excitement out of you. A lot of mulch. <laughs> I know mulch is your favorite gardening. <laughs> so we try to get mulch into every tip now. But yeah, no, this one I, literally people did mention you could get mulch over the top, which then prevents the evaporation of the water. So there you go. We, we were dri- we were driving upstate this weekend and I was like, uh, we passed a business called Mulch King. Uh, and I was like, baby, can we stop? Like, <laughs> yeah, like, they have more kinds of mulch than I've ever seen. Uh, <laughs> that's amazing. Did they have a t-shirt? Mulch King. Uh I mean, that's a good point. That's a good point. That 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 is a, a streetwear brand waiting to happen. It um, is. Yep. You know, my tip is bulbs related. I mean, like, see what all the fuss is about with this tulip bulb, uh, tulip boom. You know, like, I, I think like yep. the um, I when I started gardening was so intimidated by bulbs um, because they're expensive um, because they you know require forethought, right? You have to get them in the ground in the fall in order to enjoy them in the spring. Um, and because like, honestly, I just don't understand them. They're kind of this alien little guy. Um, yeah. you know, like, like they're really weird if you think about it, they it's are. like a fully contained organic entity that you put under the ground and then it just chills and then a flower happens. And it can be long time later, by the way. Yeah. Like a yeah. year later, it, your bulb will finally go off. Well, and also, I I had the impression that you needed to replant bulbs every year, um, but that's only true if you're going to be very like punctilious about your garden, oh. um, which it, it, you know is unadvisable. I mm. think. Um, you know, so like we just have like a couple of big planters that we throw a bunch of random bulbs in, um, and like twenty five bucks can get you a grab bag of lots of great stuff. That's rad. Um, if you 
if you've got a lawn, um, you could like grab a big bag of bulbs and a couple of kids and a couple of trowels and have them, you know, just tire themselves out planting a whole bunch of tulips in it. That's and amazing. It'll look freaking great. Yeah. Um, but now is the time to think about that kind of stuff. Yeah, the um, fall. You have probably until the frost. Yep. Get the bulbs in the also ground. Also garlic. Also, it works with garlic too. Oh, the other thing about bulbs is sometimes they do look like baby onions and garlic, and you don't want to eat your bulbs. You don't want to eat them. used yeah. to happen around the tulip craze. My mom was like- Seriously? Yeah, because my mom gave me a bunch of bulbs one year, and she was like, don't mistakenly eat these, because they look a little <laughs> bit like baby onions. Like, you would put them in a stew. <laughs> And mm-hmm. I was mm-hmm. like, I won't, I won't. And she's like, well, let me tell you a story. And she told me a story about how like this guy had to walk the plank because he was on a boat and he ate like one of the fanciest bulbs of all time thinking it was oh, a baby man. onion. And it was like, a, what a way to go out. I know. Who knows if it's <laughs> like, true. Either way, it's we great. Get another statue of that guy for posterity. Exactly. Uh, you know, the, let's the, crowdfund the, the statue. statue. Yeah. Like. I mean, I the I mean, you know, when we get to the A16Z level, uh, we can just fund that business out of. We can just make that business happen out of. And I pure think if curiosity. you make these crowdfunded statues heavy enough, people might just leave them there. You know, <laughs> like you just are like, this is a, you know, marble statue. <laughs> yeah, people like, are I, like I don't... what do we get? How do we get this out of here? Yeah. Yeah, like I, I like I don't think that it, I think it would last for a while. Um, yeah, you know, like and the the question would be like, how do you not get in trouble for it? Because I'm sure the cops would show up at your door if you're just like leaving marble statues all over the place. They might think if we do it, if they're tasteful, that this is the yeah. city. You know what I mean? And then all of us, and yeah. we pick spots that are kind of like just inside big planner boxes. You know. <laughs> So it's like, oh, like somebody clearly placed this correctly. You know, we'll let's work on this as like one of our our projects, because I do like the idea of having random people showing up at their park and seeing a statue of themselves. (laughs) I mean, because we could then say we're, you know, like every guest, like our guest lives in Berkeley (laughs) from today, Caitlin. Let's figure yeah, out yeah. a park in Berkeley and put up a Caitlin statue <laughs> to commemorate. Yeah, we'll her never tell her. her. We'll never tell her. Yeah, yeah. But somebody at <laughs> some point will be like, "Did you know there's a statue of you in this park?" She'd be like, "Get out! You know, get out of here! Get out, get out of here!" here. Did, you, did you know there's a statue of you in this Staples parking lot? Uh, <laughs> <laughs> it's positioned perfectly on the inside of this tree holder. Uh. <laughs> Oh, yeah, yeah. I, I'm out of smart things to say for today. What about you? <laughs> oh, I was out 10 minutes ago. <laughs> yeah. Well, we love you, listeners. Bye. Bye. Uh.